So, as you can see, half of us are sick again. It's good. No, it's not. It's not good. Just <laughs> pray for, pray for our, my family and your families, everyone that's sick. Winter is awful. February is probably my least favorite of the months. Just sucks the life out of you. <laughs> yeah, it's windy. I don't know. Like, I thought valleys are supposed to be protected from the wind. I don't understand this at all. I don't know how we have a roof and windows left. But anyways, it's because of prayer. This is what we're talking about, prayer. All right, so we've been talking about prayer the last few weeks. Um, uh, this week we're going to talk about prayer and attitude, which is everyone's favorite thing to talk about. Um, uh, there's a saying, in Bible school people would get these sayings and they would just repeat them over and everyone, everybody. Anyway, so one of the things, one of the, the quotes that we heard a lot was, um, your attitude affects your altitude. So, your attitude affects how far you go, how high you go, whatever you do in life is affected by your attitude. So if you like quotes, I don't remember who said that, everybody did, but it came from somebody, Google will tell you, but um, if you can remember that, it'll help. Your attitude affects your, your altitude, and your attitude basically affects everything we do. And if you have a good attitude, you'll go further than if you don't. So we're going to talk about attitudes in prayer and some different things. Um, fear, anger, shame, depression, um, and misdirected desires and how to pray with these and how they can affect how we pray. So, you know, there's a lot of different attitudes and emotions we have as humans. These aren't even half of them. There's a lot of things that we experience, and it affects how we, we pray. And sometimes, you know, maybe you're angry, so you don't want to pray, or you're afraid, so you don't want to pray. We allow these things to stop us from praying. Um, so it's like, so should an angry person pray? Should a... Depressed person pray, should somebody that's afraid pray, should an atheist pray, should a sinner pray, should someone that's depressed, I think I already said that, but should they pray? You know, these are questions we have sometimes. So Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 38 to 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So right off the bat, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. No attitudes, no emotions, nothing we're going through can separate us from the love of God if we want His love, if we want it. Um, so what attitudes are okay during prayer? We have... A lot of different emotions and attitudes and thoughts. And sometimes, sometimes we can assume that God disapproves of what we're thinking. Sometimes we assume that God is, isn't impressed with what we're thinking, how we're feeling. And we, we struggle sometimes to pray when these things are going on. We struggle with fear. We struggle with anger. We struggle with shame and depression and all these different things. And sometimes we, are, we assume that God disapproves of it. Sometimes we worry if we're honest with him, if we tell him the truth, what we're really feeling, what we're really thinking, what we're really dealing with. Um, sometimes we worry that he will be upset 
or disappointed. Has anybody ever felt like that? Maybe once or twice. But do these things really make him feel like that? Do they really do that? Or can God work and use them? Are attitudes obstacles? Or can they be um, incentives? Can they drive us to prayer? Um, so we're just going to talk about a few of these things. So fear. Throughout a lot of the Bible, we see the word fear. Um, fear not is in the Bible 365 times. So if that's one for a day, I don't know. But it's very coincidental. But fear is a big thing in the Bible. It shows up a lot. And we see the word fear a lot in relationship with God. And the word, in English, the word fear, um, it doesn't really have the same depth to it, the same um, meaning as it did in Hebrew and Greek. When we say fear, we usually think like dread, you know, like a haunted house or a horror story or Halloween or something that it's paralyzing fear that you can't move you're you're terrified for your life or you're terrified of something that it just paralyzes you right but in Hebrew and Greek it, it's that also but it also talk it also means a reverence or an awe uh, a respect for God that will lead us to trust lead us to love him lead us to worship him and lead us in joyful obedience it's not so much Ah, scare me. Right? I'm going to die. It's not so much that. It's, it's more of a, a healthy respect. Um, with Cornelius in the book of Acts, this kind of fear that we're talking about leads him to prayer instead of away from God. Um, he respected and he feared God and it pushed him to pray because he wanted to please him. He wanted to know him. So in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 2, it says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So he feared God with his whole house. Him and everyone in his house, they feared God and they prayed always because of this. They weren't hiding in fear. They weren't, you know, closing the windows barring the doors in fear. That's not what we're talking about. They were respecting God and honoring Him and being careful to do what was pleasing to Him. They weren't taking the relationship with God for granted. They weren't talking about Him irreverently. They weren't taking His name in vain. They respected God. So some other verses about this, the fear of the Lord, Exodus chapter 18, verses 19 to 21 says, Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. For thou the people to God, where that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the, the way wherein they must walk, and the work they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. This is where Moses is picking the people that are going to be in charge. And one of the things they needed was to be, to have a fear of God. One of the things they needed was to respect God. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 28 29 says, And the Lord heard the voice of your words, which ye spake unto me, and the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken unto thee. They have well said all that they have spoken. 
Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it be well with them and with their children forever. So God's saying, if these people would fear me and keep my commandments, I will be with them. We need to fear him. We need to not tremble and cower and run away, but fear him in a sense of respect. Um, Job chapter 20, verse 28, and it said, And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and depart from evil, and to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. It's a smart thing to respect God. It's a smart thing to honor him and show him reverence. Some other verses, Psalm 19 and 9, Proverbs 9 and 10, Proverbs 14, 26 and 27, Proverbs 31 and 30. Luke one fifty and uh, Acts um, one to two, which we already read. That's Cornelius. So this sort of fear is healthy. This sort of fear is a respect. It's like when you're driving and um, the a car behind you has lights on the top of it. And they're usually white. Maybe a stripe or something. Words on the side. You're not like afraid that they're going to kill you. But all of a sudden you remember how to drive properly. <laughs> and it's a respect for the law. It's a respect for the people in uniform behind you that have the authority to do something if you break a law. That's the kind of thing. You're not like you're afraid that they're going to do something to you, but you're, you respect it and you, you obey what you're, you're doing, what you're supposed to do. Everyone's a good driver when... Police are behind them. I always wondered if they get frustrated when they're trying to get somewhere and everyone all just slows down. <laughs> I don't know, but it's like uh, fear for your wife. You're not afraid she's going to kill you, but you you want to please her. <laughs> you want to respect her. You want to do what she asks you to do, not because you know something, whatever. But out of respect, that's what we're talking about. A fear is a, out of respect. Um, so that's mostly when the Bible says fear God, that's what we're talking about. Fear of res- um, out of respect. And then there's a fear in the sense of dread. And that is wired into us um, for protection. You know, if you're up in the woods and a bear comes, you feel something. If you're normal. You feel I gotta get out of here. <laughs> Even though they tell you just to lay down and pretend you're dead, which I don't understand, but I've never had this happen. But you fear, you feel something that I gotta go. There's a thing they call um, flight or, or fight or flight. You get this whatever. You're gonna either fight or you're gonna, you're gonna run. There's, that's what fear is meant to do. Fear is meant to protect us. To get us out of places that we find ourselves in, but if um, it's not in and of itself a negative thing, but it's a signal that we need to take action for our safety. It becomes negative when it paralyzes us and it prevents us from working toward what God wants us to do. When it stops us from working toward our, our God-given potential, what God's called us to do. When we allow fear to paralyze us and hold us in a place then it becomes dangerous. 
when we become too afraid to step out or move out or um, follow God, and we, get, we have the fear of rejection, um, fear of looking like a fool or people making fun of us, fear of uh, our feelings being hurt. You know, that's when it becomes dangerous. Um, so there's respect, and then there's, there's dread. The Bible speaks to this negative type of fear, uh, the fear that paralyzes us from taking action. Um, and in the Christmas story, the angels show up, and what do they say? Don't be afraid. Fear not. Right? Um, the people were afraid. Mary was terrified. She was scared. She, didn't, she was paralyzed. But the angel told her to fear not. Don't be afraid. And that allowed her to move and do what God wanted her to do. The shepherds were told, um, fear not. And after that fear was gone, they were able to go and tell people and go see um, the baby Jesus. So Matthew 1 and 20, Mary is told. Luke 1, 1 to 13, Mary is told again. Same story. Uh, Luke 1, 26 to 30, it's Joseph. He's worried about what people are going to think about Mary being pregnant and they weren't married, you know. Trying to do the right thing, but the angels tells him not to be afraid. And then once that fear is gone, he's able to go and do what he's meant to do. Um, and then Luke 2, 8 to 10 is the shepherds. Um, 1 John 4 and 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth, casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made in perfect love. So knowing that God loves us, we can, we can acknowledge unhealthy fears and we can bring them to him in prayer. If there's something that terrifies you and holds you back from doing what you feel God's called you to do or you know, stepping out, praying with somebody or leading song service on a Wednesday night when you weren't ready or anything like that. If there's any sort of fear like that that holds you back from doing what God has called you to do, we can bring that to him in prayer. Um, because God doesn't want us to be paralyzed in fear. God has called us to go and to do. He's called us to, to step out and do these, these things. Um, dread paralyzes and it's counterproductive. You can't go if, if you're not moving. You can't go if you're, you're stuck. So there's a, there's a parable about a man with talent, of the, the, the men with talents, right? One has five, or whatever. The guy that has one, I just forget everything sometimes. Five, two, and one. So the guy has one, and what does it say? He, said, he hides it because I was afraid. He didn't know what was going to happen, so he just hid it and he did nothing. He let that fear paralyze him from doing anything for the master. And in the end, it cost him everything. And he was cursed because of it. So we're to fear God, we're to respect him, but not be so afraid that we're filled with dread and we don't do anything. We don't step out. We can allow... Um, the God of love to transform unhealthy fear and show us how to use it for good. So when we take our fears to God, um, we let his love cast it out. His perfect love casts out fear. So if you are afraid, you take it to God and he will cast that fear out. He will give you the strength. You get into his presence, he will give you a boldness, he will give you anointing, he will give you power. Just say, Jesus, I'm afraid, help me. I feel you calling. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the next step is. I'm terrified to do it. I need your help. 
And we can use it to drive us to prayer. We can use it to pray. We can use it to find strength and, and courage and boldness in the Lord. But if we ignore it and we just hide what God's given us, like the man with the talent, because we're afraid nothing will come out of it, nothing will happen, nothing will grow, we won't go anywhere. We'll just be waiting around until he comes back, and then he's like, what did you do that for? He did nothing. Why? Right, so we can't allow fear to hold us captive. We bring it to Jesus, and his love will cast out the fear. Does that make sense? Um, sometimes we are, sometimes we're afraid that we've done something wrong. Um, and sometimes we're afraid that God's going to ask us to do something that we don't want to do. He's going to ask us to pray for somebody we don't want to uh, pray with. Sometimes we get um, afraid of that sort of thing. But if God's calling us to do it, he's going to help us. That's what he does. He doesn't just call you and then let you go out and make a fool of yourself. Amen. He calls you and he's going to give you the strength to do it. <clears throat> so fear, it can either paralyze us or we can use it to go to God in prayer and become stronger. Anger. Here we go. Anger's a good one. Everyone loves anger. Um, in the steps of grief, one of the steps is anger. If somebody, if you ever lost anybody, you know, there's certain things you go through. There's denial. Um, and anger's another one of the things I can't, I just, whatever. I didn't write them down, I'm sorry. But anger is one of the things. You get angry that this happened. You get angry that they're gone. You get angry that... You know, you get angry at yourself, you get angry at them for not being there, you get angry at God sometimes for allowing it to happen. You think, you know, one of the things that happens is anger. I know when my father passed away, I, I was an angry teenager because I didn't think it was fair. I was mad at him for it happening. I was mad at the world for not caring. I was mad at God because I thought he could have stopped it and he did it you know I was just mad and it's okay for us to be angry it's healthy sometimes to be angry because you hold everything in you're going to get ulcers you're going to have all kinds of problems you're going to blow up one day and no one's going to see it coming it's just going to be a mess it's okay to be angry it's a natural thing um, if you're angry you can share it with Jesus even if you're mad at him you can pray you can tell him. You can be honest. You can let it out. Because once it's out, you can start healing. Amen. Once you get that off your chest, once you get that out, and then that's when the healing starts. And sometimes we hold things, we hold anger, we hold these things for so long, and we don't address it, and we just push it down and down, and we don't deal with it. And it holds us back. And if we can just... Take it to God and say, God, I'm angry. I'm upset that this happened. I don't understand. This is frustrating to me. I don't know why you allowed this to happen, even though maybe he didn't or whatever. Just once you get it out there, that's when the healing can start. Because honesty is important with Jesus. If we share anger, it, it is, you're acknowledging his existence. That's a good, that's a good thing. If somebody's angry with God, that's okay because... Um, they're acknowledging that he's there and that there's something he could do about it. Expressing feelings towards or feelings of anger towards God is nothing new. Job lost his children, his wealth, his health, 
all at the same time, and he lost you to God. He questioned God's purpose in this tragedy. In Job 7 and 11, he said, Therefore I will not refrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And then he asked God to just leave him alone. In verse 19, Job 7, 19, he says, How long wilt thou not depart from me? Or let me alone till I swallow, swallow down my spittle. He was just like, God, why does this happen? Just leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm frustrated. I'm mad. I'm upset. I don't understand all these things that have happened to me. So should we stop praying until we're no longer angry? No. You're never going to not be angry until you give it to God and let him take it from you. Do we have to be nice to pray? Do we have to be in, you know, hold our hands and, oh, you know, recite some wonderful poem? That's not what we need to do. God can handle our angry outbursts. He's got big shoulders. He's carrying the world. He understands. He knows. Tell him. Get it off your chest. Some people just need to get things off their chest. My wife, her family, they're those kinds of people. I'm the kind that holds everything in and then blows up, which isn't healthy, I know. I'm working on it. But they're the kinds that just, they'll just, I don't know if it's like the, the, the deaf thing, like they don't really care. They just, they'll just tell you how they're feeling and that's it. They're done. They're moving on. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Poor me. And then I go over in my head for weeks, but some people, that's how they are. Some people just, they get it out and then it's all over and it's just blow up and it's done. And you know, that's good to do that in prayer instead of being like me and holding everything in, right? Because then it's gonna come out eventually and then it's gonna be a big mess and a big ball and vest and all that stuff. It's good for us to get it off our chest and get it out there and let God deal with it. And the Bible says, be angry and sin not. You can be angry and not sin. Give it to Jesus. He knows. You don't need to pretend with him. You don't need to pretend that everything's fine. He doesn't. He knows. In the book of Job, he let Job get all that stuff out. He let Job lash out. He let Job say all these things. And then he spoke. He straightened Job out. And in the end, Job was closer to God than he was at the beginning. Anger can drive us closer to God if we allow it. The same with fear. We can use it to drive us closer to God. We can use it to put us in His presence or we can try to bottle it up and pretend it never happened and that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't fool anyone. Shame. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed with shame for the sinful things we've done. Um, perhaps we haven't yet experienced God's forgiveness for things that we did in the past and you know, we haven't repented and experienced his forgiveness. Or maybe we were once close and we let um, things come between us and we've fallen away. Um, it's tempting sometimes to think, like, what right do I have to approach God? Why does God want to listen to me? I failed him, I've done this, I've whatever. And we allow these things to get between us and God. And our shame can draw us closer to God in prayer if we allow it. If we allow it, we take it to God in confession and say, God, I failed you here. And God can forgive once we do that. But if we just hide away, it doesn't do anything, any good. Shame can bring us to a point of honesty and responsibility for our actions when we allow it. The concept of shame is uh, 
It's a pretty big deal in Scripture, not because God forces shame on us, but because um, our conscience and feeling of guilt are natural, normal reactions to sin. When you do something wrong, you feel bad. Well, you should. That's the first time you do it anyway. And then you grow accustomed to it, and that's a whole other issue. But our shame can draw us closer to God if we allow it. A lot of the Psalms speak of not being put to shame. Um, it's the same with fear. There's two different types. There's shame as in feeling remorse, you know, a personal thing. God, I'm sorry I did this. I failed you here. I didn't do this thing that I, I felt like you wanted me to do. I didn't read my Bible today. I didn't pray, whatever, just simple things like that. I mean, there's obviously deeper stuff, but I don't want to get into that right now. But just, there's a feeling of remorse, a feeling of, you know, I need a forgiveness. And then there's shame as in um, a public thing where you, you shame somebody and you cut them off and you alienate them. All right, the first one is good. The first one leads us to repentance, right? When we feel bad about something, that's the first step to repentance. You know, you, feel, you sin, you feel shame, you're like, oh God, I need you to forgive me. Boom, you're back in the presence of God, you turn to God and everything's going to be fine. The second one, it's not so good. That's, where, that's what put the shame means. You put someone into shame. You, you alienate them because of something they did. So Psalm 22, and verse 3 to 5, says, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried out unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded with the shame. <clears throat> that's what confounded means, put to shame. They were not put to shame because of something they did. God gave them grace. Amen. God didn't publicly shame them. God didn't publicly embarrass them. He gave them grace. Psalm 31, verse 1, and verse 17. So verse 1 says, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. And verse 17 says, Let me not be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon thee. Let the wicked be ashamed, and let them be silent in the grave. And then Psalm 119 and 6 says, then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. So David talks a lot about not being ashamed, not being publicly humiliated because he's failed God or he's, you know, let him down. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 4 to 8. Isaiah talks, um, speaks some words of comfort to the people of Israel when they feel shame for rejecting God. He says, Fear not, for thou shall not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith God. For a small amount have I forsaken thee? But with great mercies I will gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. So they had backslid. And they were trying to come back to God. So he's saying, don't be ashamed. God's not going to put you to shame. He's going to bring you back. He's going he's to love you. He's going to give you uh, mercy and grace. The New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, For the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down the right hand of the throne of God. 
So the shame was when Jesus was on the cross. You know, they stripped him, they beat him, and they did all. You know, you know the story. And that was his shame. That's not what he's going to do. He took our shame. He's not going to put shame on us. He took it from us. So the shame we, so the shame that we feel. Remorse, repentance, that sort of thing, and then there's shame that we put on to others. The shame we feel is okay if it's used to lead to repentance, just like fear. But if we don't do that, if we don't let it um, bring us to repentance, then we allow it to hold us back and cripple us, right? You're just afraid of what people are thinking, and it goes along with fear. The shame we put on others is dangerous. It keeps them from coming to God. Some people won't come to church because something happened in their past. And they're embarrassed or they're ashamed and they're afraid of what people are going to think. And that's a dangerous place. Nobody should feel shame to come to God. Nobody should feel shame to come into his house, to come into his presence. First John um, makes a, distinct, a distinction between good Guilt and bad guilt. First John 3, verse 19 and 21. It says, Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. So if we condemn our own hearts, we feel shame or guilt. God is greater than those things. God is greater than those feelings. Good guilt will lead us, or good shame will lead us to repentance and forgiveness. Well, bad guilt lingers unnecessarily and affects our relationship with God if we don't allow it to bring us to Him. And most of these things, they can either be good or bad. It depends on how we use them. You know, fear, shame, anger, all these things, they can come between us and God or we can use them to draw us closer to Him. Shame can either lead us or drive us from Jesus. God wants us to come to him when we feel shame, not hide. Like Adam and Eve hid because they felt shame and God came looking for them. He's looking for us when we feel shame. The woman at the well in Samaria, she went to the well at that time of the day because of the shame from her reputation and her lifestyle and everything she'd been through. She was afraid. She was ashamed. So she went to the well when nobody else would be there. But Jesus used that shame to meet her and change her life. Shame can lead us to Jesus if we allow it. No sin or circumstance can make us so bad or disgusting that God wants nothing to do with us. He loves us unconditionally. So if you feel bad about something, take it to him in prayer. Let him take that and draw you closer to him. <clears throat> Depression. Depression is a disorder that affects Christians and non-Christians alike. I'm just reading this definitions and stuff. But its clinical definitions within the field of psychology and psychiatry have to do with the balance of chemicals in the brain as well as elements with one's environment. Um, but there's also a spiritual dimension. Some people have called it a cancer of the soul that just eats away and it affects everything we do. People who suffer from depression um, need to visit a physician in order to figure out whether or not it's um, physical illness is uh, affecting it or if it's um, 
chemical or whatever it is. A physician can describe medication to relieve symptoms of depression if that's what you want to do. Professional counseling or therapy can often help somebody go sort through issues and figure out what's going on or where it's coming from so they can address that. Um, a pastor who is well trained in that sort of thing can help a person look more closely at spiritual dimensions of depression. Um, there's a lot of good practical help that's available to anybody who suffers from occasional or chronic depression. But somebody who struggles with depression often struggles to find meaning in life. You know, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning because there's no reason, right? Particularly just the ordinary activities of the average day. It's just, I just can't even do this today. I don't want to get up. I don't want to go to work. I just can't even, can't even, as the kids would say. <laughs> they do not feel as though they can summon the emotional or spiritual energy it takes sometimes to maintain their relationships with others or with God. And any attempt to do that um, seems to fall flat. It's a, it's a thing that people deal with. It's a serious issue. And some people may wonder if God would prefer that they get everything, get their act together before they even try. You know, what's the point of even trying? If I know it's just going to... It's going to feel like this tomorrow, right? So, some people think. <clears throat> but when we struggle with depression, we know very well the valley of the shadow of death that David talks about in Psalm 23. But we, we can be assured of another Psalm, Psalm 40, 1 to 3, that says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. So God can bring us out of this. God can bring us out of this, this pit. We don't have to hide our feelings of depression from God. And we don't need to get our act together before we pray. Which is what, you know, it's been a theme through all of this. Take it to God. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 to 9, it's a story about Elijah. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and withal how he had slain all the prophets of the sword. So Elijah has just, um, God has just called or sent down fire from heaven, consumed the sacrifice on the altar, and then Elijah killed all the prophets. You know this. Anyways, so that's where we're at. And then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So Jezebel sends a messenger saying, I'm going to kill you. You killed all these guys, you're going to be like them tomorrow. Or I'm going to be. That's basically how she's saying it. Verse 3 says, And when he saw that he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father. So he goes from this one high. And, you know, depression is not something people that aren't dealing with it can really understand. You can be up one moment and the next moment just everything falls it doesn't even, you can't explain why you're feeling like this. You don't understand. He just literally saw fire fall from heaven. He just saw victory over all these other prophets. And now this woman, all she says, I'm going to kill you. I mean, probably not the first time. 
somebody's threatened him. Probably not the first time somebody said something ignorant to him. But this, it just puts him over the edge. And he's like, God, just take away my life. I'm done. There's no point. I just, he just, high and then low. That's how it happens sometimes. And it says, and he looked and behold, there was a cake. I'm oh, sorry. And as he lay under, he lay and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went into the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights and the horror of the mount of God. And he came thither into a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What doest thou here, Elijah? So Elijah was somebody in the Bible that struggled with depression. It doesn't say depression, but the symptoms are all, they're all there. He struggled with it. He was working for God. He was working hard. He was doing the right thing. And it just seemed to bring bad on him. And he, he just was up and down. Jezebel wanted to kill him. And he just prays. He says, God, kill me now. I'm done. Just take my life. I don't know if anyone's ever done that before. It's not a prayer that we normally suggest to pray. But he did it anyway. Because that's what he was feeling. That's what he was going through. That's what he felt at that moment, and that's what he prayed. And, and God responded, not the way he wanted to, thank God. But God knew where his heart was, and he knew what he was struggling with. He knew what was going on, and he brought him out of it. Not because Elijah didn't say, God, bring me out of this. I don't like feeling like this. He just said, God, I'm done. I don't know what to do. Just end it because I can't do this anymore. And God answered in his own way. Not the way that Elijah asked him to answer. And sometimes that's good that God does that. So when God brought him out of it, he sent an angel twice to him to minister to him. And then he himself showed up and he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he brought him out of it. He cared for him. He took care of him and he brought him out of it because he cares about us. And if you're dealing with that, whatever it is, if you're dealing with depression, if you feel like I can't do this, just say it. And he will come and he will care for you. He cares about us. Sometimes we think that it makes us seem weak. And I have news for you. You are. So am I. God is strong. We are not. We don't need to pretend that we have it all together. and We are strong. He knows we're not. He made us. He knows what you're going through. He knows what we're dealing with. He knows that Elijah didn't actually want to die. He might have felt like it, but he knew that, you know, there's more for him to do. And he brought him out of it. You are weak compared to God. Yes, very much so. Our strength comes from him. Where I am weak, he is strong. So it's good that you're weak. It's good to admit that you're weak because he gives us strength. Second Corinthians 12 and 9, we all know this. It says, He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glorify my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If you're feeling weak, tell him it's good. He will be your strength. But if we pretend that we aren't, we pretend we got all together, what's he going to do? If we're not going to accept it. We need to... Tell him. Be honest. Almost done. I'm sorry. I'm so long. I know. Whatever. We'll get through it. Misdirected desires. It's the last thing. Sometimes we want certain things so badly that we, we're afraid to ask God because we don't want the answer to be no. 
you know, when you're a kid, you do it with your parents, right? I really want this, but I'm afraid to ask because I know I want to go to my friend's house, but I know they're going to say no, so they don't ask, right? Sometimes we're like that. Um, and we try to make these desires go away, but we can't, so we begin avoiding spending time with God in prayer. This happens sometimes. Not often, but you know, sometimes this happens. If we do pray, we pray that um, what we think we ought to pray instead of what we're feeling. Has anyone ever prayed like that? You just pray what you think God wants to hear and not what's really going on. <clears throat> yes. But Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 to 8. He says, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. It seems like he just says, you know, if you ask for something, it's going to happen. God will give you what you want. I mean, that's oversimplifying it. But when you look at it in the light of his understanding of living your life according to God's um, kingdom, God's ruling, God's will, you know, it all goes together with that. Matthew 6.33 says, But you seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So if we put God first, he'll, get, he'll provide what we're asking for, what we, what we want, what we need. The Old Testament says it too in Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. In Psalm 145, verse 16 to 19, it says, Thou openest thy hand, and satisfies the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. So if God is first in our lives, if we're living for God as we should, if we're following all these things we've been teaching, all these things we've been learning, we're following his word, if he's first, and then the the desires of our heart, the yearnings, the things that we really want in our heart are going to be good things. They're going to be born out of our relationship with God and our desire to follow Him and do His will. Um, John Wesley said, What we may not pray for, neither should we desire. So if you're afraid to pray for it, you probably shouldn't want it. <clears throat> we have no business wanting those things that we can't pray for because obviously that's something we're feeling is not what God wants, right? If that's an issue. But we can be honest with God about the fact that we want it and ask Him to change our hearts. So what does God want from us in prayer? This is the end. Um, God's with us in every situation, no matter how we feel or what attitude we're, we're dealing with, what's going on in our life. But there's two things He wants from us in prayer. The first one, He wants us to grow. He wants us to be mature, to grow in maturity, to grow closer to Him. And the second thing He wants is honesty. The, when we say honest to God, you know, usually it's an oath. But it has meaning when we apply it to our experience with prayer. God wants us to be honest with Him. In order for us to build a healthy relationship with God, we need to be honest about how we feel what we're dealing with, if it's fear, if it's anger, if it's shame, if it's depression, if it's desires, whatever it is, we can be honest with Him. That's what He wants. 
if we are frustrated or angry, we need to say so. If we're feeling ashamed, we can start by honestly acknowledging our sin through confession and then claiming his forgiveness. When we're overwhelmed with depression, we can say, God, I'm having a hard time right now. You can pray like Elijah prayed if you need to. If that's how you're feeling at the moment, say it. Let God minister. He knows your heart. And the words aren't as important so much as getting it out. Because there's times you probably notice I don't even know what I'm saying half the time when I'm praying. And I'm like, ah, I can't even think of the words. I just need you to move. I just need this to happen. And God knows our heart. It doesn't, the words don't have to be pretty. They don't have to look good on paper. They just need to come from our heart. We just need to be honest. <clears throat> um, as the Psalms show us, nothing we feel or think or say is a surprise to God. If we just read through the Psalms, like David would be like, God, why have you forsaken me? Why did you do this? And then the end, he's like, oh, you're wonderful. Like he's bipolar the whole time. But when we, we take these things to God and we say, God, you know, why is this happening? I'm, I don't understand. I'm frustrated. I need your help. When we give that to him, by the end, he's taking that. And by the end, we're praising him. By the end, we're thanking him. By the end, we're glorifying him, lifting up his name. And that's what he wants. But if we just hold that in and we just say what we think God wants to hear, we're not fooling anybody. He knows anyway. <clears throat> Most importantly is nothing could cause, nothing we say could cause God's heart to turn away from us. He loves us unconditionally. So we can be honest about whatever is on our hearts. We're not going to surprise Him. There's nothing new under the sun. You're not the first person to be angry. You're not the first person to have your feelings hurt. You're not the, I know, it's mind-blowing. You're not the first person to be upset, to feel shame feel depression. You're not the first person to go through this. You're not going to surprise him. He wants to minister, but we need to be honest. He knows anyway. Psalm 32, 3-7, we'll end with that. It says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy on me, my moisture is turned to the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. For thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve thee from trouble, preserve me from trouble, and thou shalt compass me about with the songs of deliverance, Selah. Like, he just starts this. He's like, I am dried up. I am, you know, I've sinned. Your hand was on me. I've confessed. And then by the end, he's saying, you are my hiding place. You will protect me. And when we're honest with God, he'll take us there. We're honest with him. He will, he will deliver. He will minister. And he will be there for us. Honestly, honesty leads to deliverance and joy with God. It's not only all right to bring any and all of our attitudes to God in prayer, it's part of a healing. When we can be honest with Him, He can minister. But until that happens, it's not going to happen. You're not going to be delivered until, I've preached it before, but if you need healing and you don't ask Him to be your healer, it's not going to happen. 
If you pretend that you're whole, you pretend there's nothing wrong. That's who he healed, everyone that. With the man with the withered hand, he said, stretch out your hand. He had to make a decision. Am I going to give him the one that's whole, or am I going to give him the one that needs healed? And that's why he was healed. You know, if we want God to move, we need to be honest. Because he knows what's going on anyway. He knows everything. We're not going to fool him. We're not going to surprise him. Amen. Does that make, we're clear? Clear as mud or snow? <laughs> all right, let's all stand, please.